Welcome to the Third Space Podcast. I'm your host, Faiza Farah. This week has been such a historic week. Vice President Joe Biden has uh, selected Kamala Harris as his VP running mate. This is uh, such a historic moment as the first Tamil uh, Black woman uh, VP candidate in history. And Kamala, uh, as, as a person that used to live uh, in in California, I am really intimately uh, familiar with Kamala Harris, all of the policies that I'm not really excited about, um, and, and has a, a very strong chance if Vice President Biden wins the election, that she could go on to to be the first woman president of the United States. So this is this is big. This is this is a really historic moment, and and I'm hoping that in this moment we can walk and chew gum. We can praise this historic moment while keeping our eyes focused on some of the things that are happening during the campaign in terms of campaign promises and legislation. And then, you know, also keeping an eye out on Trump and trying to keep these elections fair. Um, There's just a lot, you know, um, but it's going to be a really wild 80 some odd days before the election. Um, also, I, I wanted to take a moment to discuss mental health. I, I suffer from depression and anxiety, and this last uh, week has just been so like full of depression and anxiety, and it made me feel like it would be important to mention it on the podcast and to share some of the tools that I have to my disposal that I have cultivated through many, many, many years of suffering. Um, and I just know that there are a lot of people suffering in silence during this time that is just is so full of so much kind of external stresses that really heighten our experience of, of our own mental health. And and so, you know, in moments where I feel like that cloud is 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 coming in, there's nothing that I can do about it. I I really begin with like reaching out to friends. You know, once I've identified what's what's kind of physically and mentally going on with me, I reach out to friends and and see if they have words of wisdom or or just to let them know what's going on with me. And I find the more I talk about it, the more I get comfortable about talking about it, the more people around me know what's going on, they can show up and, and help. Uh, for example, our wonderful editor of the podcast, Susan Stewart, um, she's probably editing, editing this right now. Hello, Susan. Uh, she is my creative partner and she really stepped up in, in a huge way this week and got a bunch of deadlines in. Um, and when you have the courage to communicate what's going on in your life, beautiful and wonderful souls like Susan and some other friends are able to kind of to show up. So please don't suffer in silence. Reach out to people and let them know what's going on with you. Um, the second thing is like, you know, I know that this will pass. And so it's just a matter of being gentle with myself and not allowing myself to really get so physically destroyed through this process. And so being 
just aware that this is my depression, this is my anxiety, and like a storm, it will pass, and trying to just survive the moment so I can see that storm pass. And and finally, I had a friend, I had posted online like, hey, anybody have any advice? And someone posted this, and it was just so, so helpful, but someone had mentioned how important it was for them to do things that produce pleasure in their body. And and I never thought about that. I I'd thought about like trying to relax or exercise, all that bullshit that people tell you, like exercise, eat well, all the things that you don't have like the energy to do when you're in the depth of your depression. But the idea of using pleasure as a tool for healing was something that was new to me. And so I thought that might be interesting to share, but there are lots of things that bring me pleasure. You know, I can like put on a like comedy like uh, like a like a stand-up comedy special on Netflix and and just laugh a little bit and that's something that produces pleasure or like eating a particular food usually it's like chocolate and french fries <laughs> um and those things like kind of release endorphins cuz i've experienced pleasure you know um just identifying some of those things that bring pleasure into your body and then like giving yourself permission to do those things. Anyways, getting off my soapbox, I just wanted to share that. I know there are lots of people out there that are suffering, that are having a difficult time right now. You are not alone. I am here with you. I love you. And again, just like try to reach out to, to loved ones so that they can step up for you. Um, I guess one final housekeeping note, we took last week off and Susan and I were kind of deliberating on whether we should have this as a weekly podcast or a bi-weekly podcast. So let us know what you think. Just send us a DM or make a comment on our latest post. Go to our Instagram at uh, third space, which is T H R D S P C. So third space without any vowels. And let us know if you want weekly episodes or if you want bi weekly episodes. Our guest today is Zoe Zamutsi. Zoe is a PhD student in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. Her dissertation research is about racial science and the 20th century German genocide of the Herero and Nama people in present-day Namibia. She is also an art writer. Her particular interests are about race, memory, and photography. She has written for Art in America, The New Republic, and in 2018, she and William C. Anderson co-authored and published a book called As Black as Resistance, Finding the Condition for Our Liberation with uh, AK Press. I was so excited to talk to Zoe. She is a person that I've always respected, an academic a thinker. I felt like she would be a perfect guest for this week. There's just so much that's happening in the news between Kamala Harris, uh, Donald Trump, the post office, uh, COVID. There are so many things that are going on. And I think, you know, what better time to talk to an academic than this moment? She also has some fascinating research about the German colonial influence in in, in Africa and and its forgotten history. It was really a pleasure to chat with Zoe and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is my chat with Zoe Zamutsi.
that's a great place to begin. So where are you hunkering down right now? I am back with my parents in Missouri. Um, I was supposed to be in Namibia doing my work, but um, the pandemic kicked off like right at the beginning and my folks were really concerned about me being so far away all by myself. So um, I came back and I'm with them now. It's so wild to hear about everyone's kind of redirected plans and what they had going um, or at least what they had planned for 2020 and things feel really derailed for a lot of people. Um, how has this time been for you? Um, I, it's been good and it's been awful. I think it's been awful because of course I'm, I'm frustrated and, I had a lot of plans. I was planning on visiting my family in Zimbabwe. My sister just had a kid. Like I I there were so many folks that I haven't seen in such a long time that I was I was planning to see. Um so I'm still kind of clinging on to that frustration, but at the same time, I haven't gotten to hang out with my mom for a really long time and it's been so nice to just have conversations and ride bikes with her and go on hikes and just talk about nonsense. And I'm growing my hair out and she's like oiling my scalp again, which is super nostalgia inducing. So that's been really, really lovely. Yeah. That's, that's the thing about this particular time. I mean, beyond like the first few months of like baking bread and pretending to, I don't know, learn recipes there, there are some, uh, moments that are so, 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 so tender. Like my, my, my son, um, walked for the first time during this period. And I think I might've missed it if he was in daycare, you know, I think, I think they would have told me about it and then I would have seen it afterwards. But there are these like little moments that I'm like, I am grateful for, you know, despite the fact that it feels like the sky is falling. Um, and so, uh, did you did you just say that you're you're you have a sister that is in what what country did you mention did you say Zambia so my 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 like most of my extended family is in Zimbabwe but she lives in South Africa oh, Zimbabwe okay okay and did you did you grow up in Zimbabwe or or did you grow up in the U.S. I grew up in the U.S. for the most part, but I spent like two and some change years um, in Zimbabwe while my mom was figuring out the, um, so for her visa to to come to the United States, I think the one that she was on, there's a time you have to go back and spend in your country of origin. And because I was like four years old and I could not be away from her for more than a school day, I went with her. So I was there from like 98 to 2000, something like that. Wow. Wow. And what brought your mother to the U.S.? Um, let's see. I think that she came, I think she had finished nursing school. And I think she came as part of like USAID to do some kind of nursing study here. Um, and then she met my father mm. and... The rest is history, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you grew up in what city? So I grew up in Columbia, Missouri. So not super far away from where I'm living now. 
And how was that? How was your upbringing in, in Colombia? Um, so I have kind of two minds about it. I think on one hand, I am really appreciative to have grown up somewhere that was kind of sheltered and quiet and kind of idyllic in this way. Um, like I would ride my bike to school mm. and like roller skate with my friends in the neighborhood. But on the other hand, you know, a, 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 something that can be a part of the immigrant experience is like trying as best as you can to shield your children from the realities of, of the world. And, and often that means like lying to them and, and characterizing the world in ways that are just not right. accurate. And so, um, you know, my parents raised me without any kind of understanding of how race works, which again, on one hand, I wasn't like burdened by it and I felt like free and capable of doing everything. But on the other hand, it meant that I had to learn about things very quickly, like as a, as like a college student kind of, um, and like put the whole world in perspective for the first time. Um, and that was kind of overwhelming. What, what were some of the lies that you, that you felt like your parents had to, had to tell you uh, in terms of your upbringing? I mean, just, you know, kind of the, the lie of, of meritocracy. And I think that with black children, you have to be honest and you have to find a kind of middle ground between the idea that you can do absolutely anything and the idea that there will always be the system that tries to hamper you and it's a it's a message that is really class particular actually and it's like if you are a middle class or upper middle class or whatever black kid you can do a lot more things because you have the money to be able to prepare you to do a lot of things um but if that is not taught either um but you, so you have the resources to learn to do the things, but the reason that you're successful is, you know, you're told that you're exceptional because you're not African-American and all of these other messy things. Like you just get a really, really awful complex about who you are, who other black people are. Um, that's really awful. And it, it can be really alienating when you encounter black people that you want to be friends with because, of course, they don't want to be friends with you because it's really obvious that you hate black people. Um, so there were some things that mm-hmm. I had to work through and I'm still working through um, around class, around, you know, all of these other things. Yeah, there's, a, I, I grew up with, um, with Ethiopian immigrant parents, Ethiopian Somali immigrant parents, and um, there was never a, any real notable conversations about race, there would would be these things that would occur around my parents. And I think they did, they tried to do their darndest to kind of shield us from as much as possible when we were living in, in different places. But I, you know, I'm, I'm always really curious about what their mentality um, was at that particular time, because I think about how old they were as they were raising me and how old I am now and how I probably couldn't navigate those worlds. I'm sure, you know, when you, when you step into or are born and raised into a particular political system, 
and this this notion of like being discriminated against by virtue of your blackness, not the shade of black, but just by being black or not black, is not something that was within their world in the same way that I would say it is for someone in in Europe or North America or South America uh, and Asia and so on. And and so I wonder if they were like so used to a particular brand of discrimination that like the other brand of discrimination that they were walking into wasn't something that they were keenly aware of or mm-hmm. relative to the chaos and 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 maybe at times like you know just kind of war zone danger you know that they were fleeing from relative to that it seemed it seemed manageable, you know? Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like, I'm, I'm curious how much of it, you know, they're trying to, to kind of protect or, or, or if it was really like not something that they really let kind of enter into their kind of psyche. I think that that's a really good point. Um, I'm, so my parents were born into I mean, they were born in a British colony and it was basically the equivalent of Jim Crow, right? It was an apartheid system, um, uh, except for it was like a minority rule as opposed to kind of a white majority rule in the United States. But I mean, my mom, when she was young, and I've written about this um, in in a piece that I wrote about um, citizenship and denaturalization, Um, she lived in in an internment camp because in the part of the country where she was living... um, it was a kind of corridor for young men who were going to go join the liberation struggle. And so the Rhodesian government put civilians into internment camps to prevent them from giving resources and communicating and interacting with the, with the freedom fighters. Um, and so I don't think that what they experienced in the United States was unfamiliar. I, maybe I would say that it, it was, it was a bit manageable, um, or, or at least different, you know, they came to go to school here. So there were at least some, some more opportunities for upward mobility compared to, um, Rhodesia. I am in with, with the 2016 election, it's been really interesting in particular talking to my mom, um, about how she feels about everything because, you know, she tells me that, there's something about Donald Trump that is this really horrible, like amalgam of Ian Smith, who was the white minority, the prime minister when she was a kid, the prime minister of Rhodesia, um, this, this combination of like Ian Smith Mm. and Robert Mugabe, who was the president for almost 40 years after independence, this, this, this dictatorial Mm. figure. Um, And there's something so traumatic for her about, you know, when she became a naturalized citizen, like having to give up her Zimbabwean passport, like having to give up her birthright and, and realizing that she maybe didn't intend to be here as long as she, as long as she has, um, Zimbabwe has just become an inhospitable place in in so many ways for so many people. And it, it just wasn't possible for her to go back. Um, and so that's been a really in in thinking about that and having conversations with her about her reaction to what's going on now, you know, I I used to be really resentful about the way that they sheltered me, but I have 
a much more kind of empathetic understanding of why, you know, of, of why she decided to only teach me English, of why she tried her best to shield me from all of these racial injustices. It's just, it's this, this hope that you can spare your children of the kinds of things that you endured. Um, with whatever you right. have at your, with whatever tools you have at your disposal. And sometimes that means this kind of strategic silence, you know? Well, and, and I think that's so much more common than we talk about, like oftentimes black families in, in, in America, you know, we have collectively, we have these conversations about how you transmit this knowledge from, from, you know, the adult, the parent, the guardian to the child that is having to, although they're too young to experience any of that shit, they're having to uh, confront racism. And um, and this transmitting of, of knowledge is a way of kind of protecting them and keeping them so- safe. But what I, what I, I can completely relate to the idea of of fighting for the right for your child to 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 be free of fear for as long as possible you know and it's it's really difficult to to try to 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 raise a child that has embodied a kind of fear that that will feel like it limits their life and so you know, it's such an impossible task for a parent. It's like, how do you protect your child uh, and and their sense of of freedom and and which is like kind of the absence of of fear, while also protecting them from experiencing uh, racism and and potentially entering kind of uh, life altering or, or fatal interactions with uh, racist or white supremacists. So it's, it seems so impossible and it seems so fucking unfair that parents have to make those kinds of decisions, but it's not often that we talk about that, that fierce protection, protection of our children's um, innocence and their and their sense of, of 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 free freedom in their tiny bodies, you know. It's been really really appreciative of my mom being so honest, um, being so honest of the thi- with the about the things that she tried to do, about the the knowledge and the resources and the understandings that she had at the time, and and also you know her being honest in how she failed. Um, to, to give me the things that I needed, even after I had expressed that I needed them. And it's, it's been a real vulnerability. You know, we make these jokes about like, you know, African parents having to say they're sorry. Um, but (laughs) I've been, I've been so appreciative. Um, and because, you know, she's been telling me more things about her upbringing and it gives me a much clearer context for why she thought that what she did would be the best. Um, and some of it is trauma-based and some of it is fear-based and some of it is just what she thought made sense in 1994, you know? Um, so it's just, you know, being critical of our folks while also just trying as best as we can to be understanding of, of, of why they, I mean, obviously short of like apologizing for abuse, um, understanding why they decided to do the things that they did for us. 
Well, I, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned um, Donald Trump and 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 your mother's kind of um, maybe trauma response to all of the things that he says and just him as a presence in American politics. I I think about like like how many other immigrants are seeing some of the patterns and recognizing some of the patterns in terms of attacking institutions, attacking the press, making people suspicious of medical professionals, the media, uh, all of these things that, uh, you know, have trying to uh, get the judges, the the judges that are, that are are willing to, to, you know, to, to shift policy and legislation. I mean, all of those things that are like really strong indicators that have probably, you know, folks, immigrants that, that have come from uh, countries that have experienced a dictatorship can probably recognize these patterns. And it's, it's, it's gotta be really triggering to see the pattern. It's like seeing the storm coming in and, and being like, you know, like, the person waving the flag, like, Hey, like there's a hurricane coming. Uh, no, there's a hurricane here guys. You know, like, I wonder how fucking traumatizing it, the last three and a half years have been. Yeah. I mean, my mom told me I was really worried about her after he was elected. Um, and she told me afterwards, she was just like, I couldn't get out of bed. Cause I was so angry and so scared. And there were so many things that were so familiar um, in his campaign leading up uh, to his election. And yeah, I mean, at the same time that, you know, he's trying to dismantle the postal service right now, you know, Zimbabwe is going through its own heightened round um, of bullshit of, of, you know, the president calling um, opposition and dissenters like terrorists of, you know, the police being extra active, of journalists being kidnapped out of their homes and like held in custody. Um, you know, and it's and it's also been interesting seeing people like American pundits use Zimbabwe as um as like a warning of like what the United States could devolve into. And I'm just like, okay, so on one hand, you're 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 kind of sticking with this exceptionalism thing, like we can never have fascism, like these things could never happen here. But on the other hand, you're deploying your racism just to kind of show what happens when political institutions get destroyed and eroded and not, while also not saying anything about the protests that have been ongoing and people cry, like people like trying to get attention, um, to, to, to have conversations about like regime change. Um, and, you know, it's been interesting. There was this big corruption scandal in the health ministry and the health minister got fired and a whole bunch of folks in the health ministry got fired. And the president like stacked the health minister with like, with the health ministry with like three military officers, like former military officers in some capacity. Um, and this was wow. a president that came into power because Mugabe's wife tried to kick him out of the party. And so the army basically was like, okay, so the president was a former like general in the, in the liberation struggle. And the army like got itself together and was like, we are not going to let him get kicked out of power. And so they removed Mugabe from power. And then this guy who's president now got 
quote unquote elected. And he did get elected, but obviously they cheat in every election. But um, yeah, it's, Mm. it's, um, there's like writing on the wall and people are just so attached to this idea that nothing bad can ever happen here while like constantly making reference to Nazi Germany and like constantly making reference to all these other places. And it's just like, as much as you want to make analogies, it's very obvious that you still don't believe that things could get bad here. Um, and that is really, really worrisome. Like how bad does it have to get? Well, you know, uh, this year is going to show us how bad it's going to have to get. I mean, if, if, if children, uh, in cages being molested by ice agents, isn't like, the thing that makes people just like see that we're running concentration camps in the border. Like if, if, if black people dying on the street on a regular basis, isn't the thing. I mean, um, this guy is, is brazen, you know, this president is, is absolutely brazen. And, and I love how brazen he is. I love that, that, that he is completely, unabashedly who he says he is because it completely pulls the veneer of, of this, this idea that you keep talking about that this just doesn't happen here. You know, this kind of delusion that we've all bought into that, like, here are our borders, these are our laws and things like that don't happen here, you know? And, um, and everyone in the beginning of of his presidency kept saying that like you know that he's just a stress test on our on our democracy when he wasn't submitting his 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 taxes when you know he you know just broke laws infidelities like all these all these things questionable relationships with with Russia it 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 kind of goes to show how fragile anything, everything is. And, and, uh, I think that this is why it's, 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 it's so, um, maddening that, that you aren't being shown the daily protests that are happening on the street. Why do you think that is, why is it that, that we've diverted our attention from, you know, uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm going to post a, a, a black square. I'm going to add a mission statement to our corporation. And it's kind of like our never again, uh, you know, sentiment. And then, and then kind of business as usual. Why have we diverted our attention? And, and there are people on the street and, 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 and folks that have tried to make the mental shift, but there is a kind of corporate element. Why has this corporate element of, of, of corporatized media decided to kind of shift its gaze from the daily protest in your opinion? I think that, well, I think there, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think the most important one is that, you know, institutions of power, um, get really good at, kind of assimilating criticism in order to sustain themselves. And if you're able to kind of assimilate criticism into your mission statement, into your advertising campaigns or whatever, then you're able to like monetize the protest. And because 
I think that so many Americans are willing to protest, but they're not willing to like give up anything or they're willing to protest only because the kind of performance of, of participating is sufficient for them, right? Because they're more interested in like social capital or cultural capital or this the veneer of social solidarity, whatever. Um, you know, it becomes easy for people to align themselves with companies that appear to be in support of protests. And so, you know, if you can align with the people who seem to be doing the thing, but you don't actually have to do the thing because being on the street means that you're getting the shit kicked out of you by police officers. Um, then of course it will be easier to post a black square or to just put a sign outside of your house or to talk about buying Robin D'Angelo's book or whatever, um, as opposed to kind of doing the, the really difficult work of, of socializing your children into understanding what white supremacy is as a white person, or, you know, it's a difficult moment to do stuff like this, but like quitting your job in protest. Um, and I, mm. I think that for a lot of reasons, may, partly maybe because of the way that the 24 hour news cycle has, has gotten us used to like spurts and, and blocks of news. Like we're not accustomed to something going on for this long. We assume it'll go on for a little bit. We only have the energy to pay attention to it for a little bit. We're not prepared for it to go on for as long as it is. Um, and so it's it's this kind of adv- cor- corporations, companies, whatever are able to kind of take advantage of the fact that we just don't have the kind of political attention spans to 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 pay attention to something for such a long time. And I think that it works to the advantage of the state because you know we can talk about how how Trump is 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 using. Is, is trying to do like federal coordination to respond to protests. But if we're not paying attention, we don't see that a lot of the police forces in major cities don't need the feds to do anything. Like Lori Lightfoot is brutalizing teenagers in Chicago with the Chicago police department, you know, and in Portland, it was the Portland police department. Mm. Um, it's the D it's the police and it's, 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 it's a narrative that, is not convenient to think about, you know, uh, democratic governors and democratic mayors, like sicking the police on, on protesters when we've become so accustomed to thinking of Trump as the root of all evil at the moment. Um, you know, Ferguson happened under president Obama, like people were getting the shit kicked out of them during previously democratic administrations. Um, it's, it's like this misunderstanding of how the state works and yeah, it's 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 really frustrating to see. Yeah, I um, I guess this would be a, a good time to to talk about uh, Vice President Joe Biden uh, tapping Kamala Harris as his VP pick. What do you think this this means, and what does it? What could this mean for the United States and and the direction it could go? Man. Um, oh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> there's something for me that's really painful about, you know, us being in the, this country being in the midst of like the largest popular 
movement that we've seen in a really, really, really long time. Um, and one of the like least inspiring presidential candidates tapping an attorney, like a, a woman who describes herself as having been the top cop and, and is, does not seem to be as enthusiastically, you know, anti-carceral, decarceral, abolitionist, defunding the police, whatever, as a lot of people would hope at the moment, um, especially with, with, with this movement going on. Um, there feels like a really messy identity politic around that. Basically that, you know, you, you've seen people, you know, making criticisms of her track record, you know, especially folks from like the Bay know how awful her policies have been. Um, and, you know, it's really horrible to see people being like, oh, well, the reason that you're saying this is because you're a racist and whatever. And like, yes, obviously there are criticisms of her that are incredibly racist that are holding her to a particular standard that they are not holding Joe Biden to as, you know, an architect of the crime bill. Um, but I, it's also right. just like really cheap, like refusal to really interrogate her politics because this is her candidacy, her nomination or whatever is supposed to be this historic first um, as a black and Tamil woman. Um, I, I think identity politics are incredibly important. Like my relationship to the world and understanding of the world is informed by me as a black woman who wants to like eradicate sexism and patriarchy and anti-black racism and colonialism and whatever. But this way that someone being black or being a particular marginalized identity means that they cannot be criticized is incredibly dangerous. Um, especially when we think about like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's really frustrating and uninspiring. And I'm just, I'm really struggling with the fact that, you know, Joe Biden refuses to back universal healthcare in the middle of a pandemic. Like that for me feels absolutely fucking ridiculous. Like I just, I don't, I don't understand. Um, it's, and maybe he'll, he'll pull out, he'll eke out a victory because people are just so desperate to have anyone that isn't Trump. And I can understand that. Um, and at the same time, like with the dismantling or this attempted dismantling of the postal cert of the, of the USPS, like what puts people under the impression that this election is going to happen normally, um, with the kind of widespread disenfranchisement that's been happening even prior to to the Republican Party trying to get rid of the postal to the post office or the USPS. Um I'm just really worried that there is all of this focus on the election and there is just this deep belief that elections are going to be the thing that save us, right? Like that the system that brought us into this moment Trump, I mean, Trump is a symptom of it. He's not the only, he's not the only thing in the political system that has brought us here, but that the system that allowed for dis racial discrimination and police violence and everything, even prior to his election is going to be the thing that saves us. And I'm, I'm really nervous that people just aren't acting as though things could go very, very wrong 
millions of people are like facing eviction because of the, because we've, you know, we've seen the unemployment, like what are, how are we preparing for that? Um, I'm really worried that we're just like hedging our bets in this election and just not thinking about, okay, so what if, what if he does lose, but he refuses to leave office? Right. Or like, what if there are so many irregularities that none of the mail-in ballots are, you know, have we, have we prepared ourselves to like take to the streets, to do whatever we need to do to, to support our communities that are going to get really, 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 really harmed if he gets a second term. I, I would much rather have that conversation than like argue over whether or not Kamala Harris can or should be vice president. Right. Right. Well, you know, um, I think, I think that's, that's been the most dangerous part of the the Trump presidency and the the Obama presidency for that matter that somehow folks are are distracted by the personality mm. and some of the rhetoric and they fail to kind of uh, look at policies and confront some of those things and and my hope um is that we've learned something about about um, about how dazzling the Obama administration was, and rightly so, and for many many reasons, um, and and how that didn't translate to less racism for everyone else. You know, um, I think Black people as a whole were so afraid that something was going to happen to the first Black family that that all of that love and prayer was sent their way to kind of cover them while, while, you know, our poor black and brown brothers and sisters on the street that are having to confront the police were getting that violence that, that, um, that had such a huge, huge uptick because of the representation of having a black family in the white house, you know, but they don't have a secret service. Those young kids on the corner don't have a secret service. They don't have wealth. They, they are completely um, susceptible to all of the, the violence. And, and I think, I think Ferguson kind of pulled that veneer for a lot of people, but I'm, I'm hoping that we can not only walk and, and chew gum at the same time and 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 be excited at the prospect of having a potential f- woman as president one day you know which which is a really exciting notion while also being super super critical of her policies and forcing through collective action forcing her and um, Joe Biden to to make these huge policy shift. And if we get distracted by the fact that she's the first so-and-so and and this is a historic uh, election, we miss, we, we, again, it's like, it it becomes like this horse and pony show and, and we fail to see the dangers that are in front of us. Like, like you pointed out, I don't think, I don't think anyone thinks this is going to be a smooth transition of power if 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 he wins or loses. I, no, I don't think anyone is under the the delusion that this person is going to walk away graciously. And the 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 kind of wild thing about him is that he 
oftentimes just opens his mouth and says what his plan is. There's no like coded hidden message about what the future is going to hold. You know, he, he just the other day said that he said that it could take up to two years for the election results to come in. You know, like what the fuck are you talking you about? Two years? Like, what are you talking about? And I, election. Right. You know, so, so, so for me, it's like, you know, I, yes, I, I'm elated at the idea of, of having a, a woman in, 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 in such a position of power, but that means nothing if that person doesn't reflect the values that, that are kind of at the center of democracy, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I think I'm at the, I'm in the same place as you because we both used to live in the Bay Area. We're very familiar with Kamala Harris and her record, and, uh, and I don't like this argument that it's like anyone but, but Trump. You know, I think that this pandemic has actually exposed a lot. You know, it has exposed that we fail to see each other as human beings, and we're pathetic when it comes to our response to the coronavirus. We saw each other as red and blue, black and white, gay, straight, all of these fucking stupid binaries, while this actual like virus was infecting us, you know, metaphorically and 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 physically and we couldn't even rally together to wear a fucking mask right right you know it's like it's it we're it's pathetic it's pathetic you know we've bought the lie that we're not human beings that we belong to these stupid teams that are completely archaic and don't serve us anymore and we're willing to die for it to die for capitalism, to die for, you know, whiteness, to die for whatever. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I, I study white supremacy and the more that I learn and the more that I understand it, like, I just, I don't, I, I, I think about like poor white people, and <laughs> right. the way that, you know, the way that people were so able to, to disentangle the like shared class interests of, poor black folks and poor white people to make or to, to, to convince a lot of these white folks that their interest is with these like white millionaires um, that kind of use them as foot soldiers. I mean, it's not to pretend that folks aren't like willing and ready and totally okay with, with playing this role, but it's just like, there's something that's so perverse in that and 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 that these like re- these bajillionaires are willing to al- to let these people to lead these people to their deaths right not let them die to lead them to their deaths um it's yeah i i would love to hear more about your research you are currently getting your phd for the Univers- university of california san francisco at the medical or in medical sociology and I would love to hear a little bit about your research, but first I want to hear about what medical sociology is. <laughs> um, it's medical sociology. What is that? It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of stuff. The way that I understand it is it's, it's kind of the way that health and health systems operate 
within society. And health and health systems can mean a whole like massive range of things, as I've learned. Like it could be about, you know, trans health and like the relationship between like trans folks being able to access like gender affirming and just like regular medical care um, and like insurance providers and the codes that insurance providers use to um, allow folks to access like funding for surgeries. Um, it could be about, it could be about like sperm banking and like choosing a sperm donor because of the traits that you want in your child, because of the traits that you have been socialized to believe are the most beneficial. It could be about food deserts and, and the relationship between access to like produce and the incidences of like heart disease and high blood pressure. It's just anything that kind of thinks about kind of health and kind of science stuff as it kind of functions in the world. Um, so it's huge. <laughs> hmm. So tell me about your particular research. So my research is about the um, about German colonialism and the Herero and Nama genocide, and I got here because I was really interested in in kind of rethinking about like Nazi science because there was nothing super exceptional about the kinds of ideas that Nazi scientists had, right? Because they were being shared and 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 mirrored by eugenic scientists in the United States and in other countries as well. So I was like, how do we think about this history where, you know, Nazi science is not this thing that is kind of exceptional, but maybe like unique to a government, to a moment and in the way that it was like deployed. So as I was learning about the history of like, Germany, I learned about this, I, I read about this genocide and I had never heard of the genocide before. Um, it was a genocide that took place in, from it was from 1904 to 1908. Um, it started, yeah, it was a part of this like German, German colonization. We also don't talk a whole lot about Germany colonizing Africa. Um, Germany also had colonies right. in China and in the Pacific, um, in Samoa. And the more that I was reading about the violence that was enacted on this community and the more that I was learning about how they are currently demanding reparations and currently demanding for the remains of their ancestors that are in the Museum of Natural History in New York, the more I was like, okay, so I want to think about how the legacy or, or the ideas, the ideologies, the practices of this genocide exist in the present. Um, and inform these different aspects of of science and medicine um, that these these communities are are bumping up against and interacting with and and refusing and organizing against and filing lawsuits. You know, currently the Herero and the Nama are in court. They took the German government to court, and the case is ongoing. It's in New York. Um, and you know, we praise Germany for its like reconciliation after World War II. But Germany is actively currently in court, like more or less denying its culpability and responsibility for the genocide that it enacted in in, in Namibia. 
Um, so I'm just thinking about law and museum practice and all of these other kinds of scientific ideas, um, kind of tracing them from 19th and 20th century into the present. In your research, have you noticed any kind of, uh, you know, um, I guess, common practices during this genocide that happened in Namibia and also uh, the Holocaust in Germany? Yeah, I mean, the, the Western Europe, the biggest one being the concentration camp system. Um, so the genocide basically started after the general in, issued this extermination order. And there was like the summary execution or whatever of, of the of the heroine of the Nama. And then the Kaiser forced him to rescind it. And after it was rescinded, they set up this um, concentration camp system in in a couple in a, in a few different parts of the of the country, um, and yeah, the Herero and the Nama were like shipped into these concentration camps, and their labor was give was out was like outsourced to like local farmers and to some companies, and you know that's like pretty identical to what we saw of the forced labor structures in in um, across um, in Eastern Europe. Um, that you know, Jewish folks and ethnic Poles and you know all of these other in, in Roma and all of these other communities were like forced into these concentration camps, and you have companies that still exist today that were using their labor. Um, so I think that for me is the biggest, the biggest one, the kind of most horrible and and, and devastating one of, of them. And and that predated Adolf Hitler. Um, how? have you seen that that those tax tactics were were borrowed from Adolf Hitler to kind of implement similar strategies um in in western europe yeah so it's so part of what what they have in in the in the kind of history of of the time this this idea of the continuity thesis that the practices that were done in German Southwest Africa um, in the early 20th century. So this is like the, the colony was founded in like 1884 and the colony, they, Germany lost its colony after world war one. So 1915 um, basically that the practices and the ideologies that were implemented in Southwest Africa were carried on into um, Germany. And there were, yeah, there were a few key figures. I think one of them in particular was this scientist called Eugene Fisher, who ended up being the head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for like hereditary genetics, anthropology. I don't remember the whole, the whole name, but he was studying indigenous communities, this mixed race group in particular in German Southwest Africa. Um, and he wrote this paper that, you know, and he he wrote this paper that was really influential about you know mixed race offspring and what their genetic identity kind of is as far as like purity and whether they should reproduce. And he co-wrote this textbook with a couple of other people that Hitler read while he was in prison in the twenties, and that became a part of his scientific justification and understanding of kind of Aryan purity of the anti-miscegenation laws that were passed, um, the Nuremberg laws in 1935 that forbade, um, Aryans from marrying non-Aryans. Um, so there was a huge scientific influence, 
Um, and that's really um, what I'm what I'm trying to to study and to think about. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. That um, that completely blows my mind and sounds so fascinating. I had to look up how many countries um, Germany had colonized in 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 Africa, and it was Burundi. You are you obviously know this. I'm saying this to our our audience. Um, Burundi, Cameroon, Namibia, as you mentioned, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Togo. And there's no real uh, acknowledgement of the historical impact of Germany in in Africa, and there is no real uh, reconciliation uh, or reparations. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious about what you've learned through some of the resistance movements that are occurring in Namibia, and what does reparations look like to Namibians right now? Yeah, I mean. I think that, I mean, to your first point, yes, I think that the the history of Germany and Africa and, you know, China and, and, the, and the Pacific Islands goes completely understated because, you know, we, we, we have this idea in our head of like the, the, like the worst of imperial offenders, right? So we think about England, France, Spain, maybe the Netherlands, if we remember that apartheid was actually like a part of Dutch colonization. Um, but we, we don't Belgium. include the Belgians, right? Cause the Belgians only had one place, but the one place that Belgium colonized, it was, a, it was horrific. Um, we don't talk about for whatever reason, Portugal. Um, and, and, and so that's something that I've, that's been who really was the country that introduced the slave trade to all of Western Europe? Right. Everyone thinks it's like uh, England, but was actually the small country of Portugal. You know, they were the ones who who switched to um, in- exclusively enslaving Africans. Um, but it's right. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really interesting to think. So the Hero and the Nama, they. The, the chiefs, they, they put out these statements and they have press conferences occasionally, which is really helpful to kind of listen to and read and follow along. Um, but they have like a, a few demands, which I think are like pretty, pretty reasonable, pretty straightforward, right? Like they obviously want a full acknowledgement by, by Germany, because what's kind of happening are these like half apologies but they're like, you can't apologize to us if you've never actually admitted that you've done something wrong. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So they want this acknowledgement coupled with this apology. They also want, um, you know, reparations for for the land taken, for the dispossession, for the lives lost. Um, they are also, you know, in court fighting to get like there remain like the 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 skeletons of their ancestors so there have been like three different rounds of of restitution of remains from germany i think there was it was like 2008 no wait 2011 2014 2018 something like that um and there were like three different groups of of skulls and and skeletons and i was actually in namibia in 2018 when um 
when there was that big handover ceremony ceremony in Berlin and it was really like overwhelming to watch it on television, like while I was in, in Windhoek in the capital. Um, but yeah, it's mostly like they want reparations. They want their ancestors back so they can be buried. Yeah. Sounds reasonable. I think so. <laughs> Sounds very, very reasonable. I think so too. Yeah. And and the fact that they have to 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 do all of this fighting to get things that are so, so, so reasonable, you know, makes me uh just angry at how insidious white supremacy is, you know, and and something that like means nothing to another country could mean everything for healing and and a sense of like uh you know peace and closure is blocked you know it's just it's it's absolutely maddening um well i i can't believe we're already at the last question it feels like this hour has kind of flown by um but i end each uh podcast with um the same question and um the the question is what is a a lesson in your life that you were really certain of at one point in your life but then have had to learn that um you've had to unlearn that lesson because it no longer serves you any ideas or or patterns you've had to break, something that you once thought was this way and now is that way? Yeah, um, that was a toughie. It's a great question, but I was like, man, okay, like I'll be honest with myself. Um, I think, I think I would, what we were talking about earlier, right, with this immigrant exceptionalism, I think the most important lesson that I've had to learn or to unlearn rather is, is the myth of, of meritocracy. Um, this idea of like rugged individualism and deservingness, um, the, the way that we delude ourselves into believing that we need to just work hard and be self-made, the idea that we can accomplish things on our own. Um, I've had to unlearn those because it, 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 kind of pushed me into some really unhealthy and competitive ways of seeing other other people especially other black folks it's it's led me away from a deep investment in in community care um and i think most importantly it it deluded me into believing that like like yes i have like skills and and things that are like unique that can be shared but it it really deluded me into believing that I was like somehow actually better than other people. Um, and also into, into acting as though like there were not people who are smarter than I am, which is absolutely not true. And so when I kind of divested from this individualism and started to, to be more invested in like mutual aid and, and care politics, and also the most difficult part um, which is letting myself get taken care of um, and refusing the idea that that being taken care of or needing help or needing care or whatever is weakness. Um, you know, it's still something that I struggle through because unfortunately writing a dissertation is this like intensely individual activity and you come out of it and you defend it and you become a doctor, which means that you are in some way like you know, you've done this thing and you're like special and an expert. Um, 
but I can't even do this dissertation by myself, right? Like I have my mom who like reminds me to eat and I have my, right. I have my friends that I do study groups with and I have people who are really generous and sharing resources and like even this activity that they try to convince you you need to do by yourself like is not something that you can survive by yourself and um yeah, I think I think that that's it. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us. I really appreciated our conversation and I learned so much about um, something that I hadn't really even um, thought much about in terms of Germany's impact in, 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 in Africa. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Of course. I'm so, so, always so glad to talk to you. Yeah.